Well, good morning. My name is Isaac. I'm the lead pastor here. We're so glad that you are here with us as we kick off December. It came fast for me. I don't know what your experience was. Could we say thank you to the creative team for all the wonderful decorations that we see around here? It is super awesome stuff. I love it. Uh, so again, welcome. Ushers, will you come forward? We'll receive our tithes and offerings. If you are a guest with us today, feel under no obligation to give. This is our gift to you. For those of you who regularly participate in uh, giving, you're, you're giving to the Lord and you are helping us steward his big mission here. You heard Craig say it in the video. We're helping people find and follow Jesus. So thank you for your help. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Thank you for your provision in our lives. As we give, we give um, because we are obedient and because we want to be a part of seeing Northeast Salem, Marion, Polk counties transformed by the love of Jesus. Uh, help the council and myself to steward well the resources of the church. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Yeah, amen. Well, thank you for your giving. Today we start our Advent series uh, simply called He's Coming. And that's what we lean into for the coming weeks as we prepare uh, for Christmas. And uh, yes, do use those invite cards to, find, uh, to uh, invite people to our Christmas Eve services. Well, the word Advent comes from a Latin word like many of our words. Um, it comes from the Latin word adventus, which means coming or visit. And this is the, uh, the season of waiting in anticipation for what God is going to do. I remember being in the, looking out the front window of uh, my house on Eccles Street in Monmouth, Oregon when I was a young child. Yeah, some people are like, ah, I know where that is. Yeah. And I was, you know, like face pressed against the glass because my cousin's we're coming all the way from Silverton, Oregon to visit. And I remember that felt like forever and asking my mom, are, when are they coming? Are they here yet? Well, do you see them yet? No, they're not here yet. When are they supposed to be here? Are they late? Did something happen on the way? You know, like, right, it, probably all of 38 minutes or whatever it would take to get from Silverton uh, to Monmouth. But I was waiting with anticipation something is going to happen and it's going to be good. And then they would finally arrive and it was just bliss. Hmm. Well, this is what Advent is. We are anticipating God coming. We are putting our imagination on the time before Jesus came as a baby in a manger, ultimately growing into a man that was highly favored between, uh, before God and man, who went to the cross for our salvation, we anticipate, what, we imagine what the world was like before then. Because we live in a similar time. Jesus has come. The incarnated Son of God has come to rescue us, and he is coming back. And so we live with this anticipation. We learn how to hope through this time. We learn how to grieve the present struggles but not as those without hope, as those with hope. That is what Advent is all about. Well, over Thanksgiving, my oldest daughter, Jenna, uh, she spent some time with people that I grew up with, and she came home and she says, Dad, she goes, they talk so much about the glories of the past, Dad. Don't they know that was a long time ago? <laughs> Sports was a big part of my life growing up. And she says, they weren't just talking about like the championship game, but like the, the one pass at the one time and you made the one move and the one cut. And I was like, yeah, I know what that's like. And she goes, it's really a long time ago, dad. And I said, I, I know. <laughs> my memory's starting to be fuzzy. <laughs> yeah. Oh, the glory of the good old days. We can remember the days of past, the days of yore, the days, whatever they are, kind of like Uncle Rico in the fine movie Napoleon Dynamite. Uncle Rico is a funny character. 
I think in a way because we, some of us relate to him a little bit. Like he's, he's living in the past. We see ourselves. He gets so stu- stuck on thinking about the past and the what if that he starts to inquire about a time machine. <laughs> so I thought I'd just show you this little scene. This is Uncle Rico. See yourself in him. <laughs> Back in 82, I used to be able to throw a pigskin a quarter mile. Are you serious? I'm dead serious. Watch this. Ah! <laughs> what the heck are you doing? That's what I'm talking about. I better go. <laughs> How much you want to make a bet I can throw a football over the mountains? <laughs> yeah. Coach would have put me in fourth quarter. We'd have been state champions, no doubt. No doubt in my mind. You better believe things would have been different. I'd have gone pro. In a heartbeat. I'd be making millions of dollars and living in a big old mansion somewhere. You know, soaking it up. A hot tub with my soul mate. Kill. I reckon you know a lot about cyberspace. You, you ever come across anything like time travel? Easy. I've already looked into it for myself. Right on. <laughs> right on. <laughs> oh, just right on. Have you ever wished you could go back in time? Change something? Sir. Our ability to look back causes us to have the ability to really to live with regret, to live in regret, to think about what <laughs> What might have been. I think it was a little Texas song too. Yeah. Try not to think about what might have been. Just tell me to shut it whenever you would like. <laughs> I, I may not preach it or sing it. You know, yeah. <clears throat> we are creatures who can look into the past. We are creatures that can wonder about the future. We are creatures that are bound to the present. I don't think that God wants us to use our ability to look back to create regret. He has something else in mind. I think he wants us to be able to see the faithfulness in the past, his faithfulness, his story that has come through every difficulty and challenge, his faithfulness to give us courage for the present, to give us anticipation for the future. That's why he has given us this ability. The season of Advent gives us the opportunity to tell the story of our past and the story of our future. It's ultimately God's story. It's not our story. He is weaving this as the grand author. He is weaving our lives so that our lives can be a testament of his faithfulness. But our lives that are not do not exist as an end unto themselves, but our lives that are part of the grand tapestry of God's faithfulness throughout all time, ultimately culminating in when he makes a new heaven and a new earth. This is why he's given us this capacity, or one of the reasons. We get to tell the story of our past and our future through Advent, and I encourage you to take advantage of this opportunity and in this season the present is important, but the present is all our, co- our culture focuses on, in part because our culture is living according to the wrong story, the wrong script. And it's not a good movie. It's not a good story. It's built on false premise. We are living what is real is we are living in God's grand epic story of his goodness. But the secular vision of the world which is the vision that is lived apart from God, the rejection of God, does not have the capacity to tell the complete story. We are living at the tail end of a long buildup. 
It is common for there to be agnostic and atheist, atheistic people within our culture over the last 500 years that has increased, but that has not been the common framework of thinking about the world, historically speaking. We are living at the tail end of 500 years of the secular vision of the world, and it is crumbling. It is coming to an end. The anxiety is very present within the Western world, trying to build progress without God, and it's all falling apart. It is like this, you know, it's like, oh man, something's going to fall apart here. It's failing. Uh, If you're a podcast listener, I encourage you to look up this podcast. It's called This Cultural Moment, and it is done by John Mark Comer, um, who is a pastor in Portland, and an Australian pastor and social uh, scientist, Mark Sayers from Australia. And they've come together to really talk about this cultural moment. And they do a great job of helping us to see how secularity, this rejection of God, this time is coming to an end. And the tide of God's goodness is coming in. And we get to be on the front end of it. Renewal is on, is happening. Revival is coming. And this is the story that we get to live into. Okay, so in this podcast, they brilliantly point out the salvation story of secularism and juxtapose it against the Christian vision of, um, the Christian vision of salvation, gospel, which means good news. So we'll walk through this. First of all, we'll look at um, the story arc of both both the secular gospel and the Christian gospel, and then we'll compare them to each other. So the the gospel story arc, both of them have the sense of a pure beginning. We started with innocence, sin and fall. Something has happened, and now not all as it should be. Salvation, there's a way within the secular framework and the Christian framework to transcend the sin and fall. And then ultimately fulfillment, What are we moving towards? And what does it ultimately look like when it all comes together? So first of all, we'll take a look at the secular gospel. And I want you to notice that this is very self-focused. This is the gospel that is very much alive and well. We've used the word telos here. This is the focus of our culture. And it looks like this. Pure beginning. The pure beginning in the secular framework, absent from God, is that the true me or the inner child, there was a time of innocence There's time of innocence. I was born into that. The concept of original sin to the secular worldview is an anathema because there's not, there's, there's sense that it is everything around this person that has broken it. This person is intrinsically good. There's a lot of thought around the true me, the inner child connecting with me within the secular framework. It's very common within our culture. So what happened? According to the secular framework, the self-focused, What happened was this, trauma happened to me, bad things happened to me. There are broken systems, the political system, patriarchy. Now these things deserve critique. I'm not saying that we shouldn't critique these things, but within the secular framework is that is what has gone wrong. That is what has gone wrong is these systems are broken and this has been done to me. Sin in the secular framework has become anything that makes me unhappy. Anything... or have to, anything that makes me unhappy, or have to submit to outside authority. This has become the anathema within the secular worldview. It starts with me, myself, and I. I am king of the castle. And so anything that is difficult, anything that doesn't bring me pleasure, is seen as sin. One of the things I want you to see within this is how we often transpose the Christian gospel onto this or this onto the Christian gospel. But we'll compare and contrast here in just a moment. So salvation, how, how does this happen? How do you transcend this brokenness, the sin and fall? According to the secular gospel, is you rediscover your inner self, the inner child. You reject any external identity. You can't label me. You can't tell me what I am. Nothing can. I decide who I am, and then I am responsible for walking in that out and showing you who I am. I reject all external identities, and I come back to my inner self. Within the secular framework, then, the fulfillment is pleasure and achievement. This is what I am living for. 
The ultimate expression of my life is my own pleasure and my own achievement. It started with me, myself, and I, my own glory. And so therefore, in order to achieve, transcend, it is my achievement, me proving to others that what I said I was is true and ultimately I can make my own worth. That is within the secular framework and then pleasure. So there's a great equation within the secular framework. As little responsibility, as little encumbrance, as little challenge as possible, and what is, gives me the greatest payoff. That is the secular consumeristic worldview that says, what is the least I can do with the most payoff? That is the water that we are swimming in, in summary. We are being thrust all the time to live according to this. And I really want us to recognize that sin in this, in this system is anything that makes me unhappy. Whoa. So one of the reasons I'm concerned sometimes when we sing songs like we did earlier, uh, you are good, you're never going to let me down. I'm afraid that we're transposing the secular vision onto that song. That is very much true from a biblical standpoint, but it doesn't mean... I'm never going to go through pain, never going to be challenged. You're always going to be good as long as I'm keeping it straight. You know, like, <laughs> yeah, slow clap, I think is, is the, yeah. <laughs> yeah, thanks, Brett. Yeah. That is ultimately what fulfillment is. Let's compare this to the Christian gospel. Christian gospel, yes, there is a pure beginning. That's in the Garden of Eden when we were in good relationship with God and with others, loving God, loving others. There was harmony. There was bliss that was uh, a part of that. It was as it should be. The sense that we all have that it should be like this is because we are created in the image and likeness of God, and that's how it was. But what happened? It's very different in the Christian schema way of thinking about things than the secular. Sin and fall. The fall, which is the fall of mankind away from uh, God, that is all created by pride. Pride which says, I can choose. I know what is right and wrong. I know what will express my glory to the world. And so I will live this way. It, the, the sin is rejecting God as king. Sin is putting me on the throne, that I am the highest value, that my as, in, as an individual. Sin in the Christian framework is not being willing to submit to any authority at all. That is sinful within this, in the Christian framework because God has placed authority within our life on many different levels. Living for our own glory, that's what sin is. That's what is created out of this brokenness, is living for myself. Hmm. Salvation. How does it happen? Very different than the secular schema. Jesus dies that we might have life. The, the Christian gospel is centered in this reality that God humbled himself to the point of death, humbled himself on a cross so that we might have life, and then that same God invites us into the same thing. Jesus says, if you want to find your life, you must you must lose your life. Paul says in Romans and elsewhere, he says, do not forget that you were baptized into Jesus' death and his resurrection. That's where your hope is in dying to yourself. Yourself is not the highest value anymore. Rather than Jesus on the throne is your highest value. And we're invited into that so that we might find our lives. Jesus said, come to me, all you who are weary, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. It is light. It doesn't mean there won't be pain. It just means when we're living according to the way of Jesus, we are given power to walk through it. And ourselves are not the highest value. Ourself is not the highest value. So the fulfillment, very different. You see how this like comes down like this on the secular side? It's like it comes down to really just your life and your pleasure and your achievement, whatever you can get out of life. What a sad way to live in the Christian way. There is a whole new heaven and a whole new earth that God is creating. He showed his faithfulness by sending his son to die and then to be resurrected again. And he will show his faithfulness to renew all things at the end of time. That's the story that we are living into. That's what Advent is all about, immersing yourselves into the real story again. Are you with me? <laughs> okay. This is what Advent is all about. 
if I can just say it briefly. Advent is, first of all, an opportunity to recount the despair the world was in before Jesus. We see ourselves in some aspects of that. We relate to it. We're in that story. The Christian vision of the world says, yes, there's brokenness. The brokenness being done to you, the brokenness in you that Jesus wants to heal. Secondly, in Advent, we recount God's surprising infusion of his son into the world. We are saved through it. We are in the story. I cannot tell you enough that the incarnation, which is God coming and becoming flesh in the form of a baby, is absolutely baffling to any other system of the world. God coming in humility so that redemption can happen. We recount that. And we anticipate there's going to be more surprises as God continues to come in the world. And the third thing that we do in Advent is look forward to his return. Jesus is coming back. We will be in that story too. We practice waiting, remembering, longing, despairing. When it's hard, yes, but as those with hope. And so we'll begin by remembering the longing that the world was in before Jesus came. Before Jesus came 2,000 years ago as a baby in that manger, the world was waiting, was hoping, and it felt very small. The systems of the world, the governments of the world, the whole process of the world did not look like the Savior of the world was going to emerge. In a similar way, we put ourselves in their shoes so that we can anticipate when all around us is crumbling, when the systems of the world, when even the secular vision they put up there just seems so big, God is at work and he is coming. So we'll begin our time in Lamentations. <laughs> if you're new to the Bible, <clears throat> Lamentations is written by Jeremiah, who is called the weeping prophet. And Lamentations is a long lament, songs of lament. Songs of lament are songs of sadness. This is like the first emo music. This is what this is. It's like Death Cab for Cutie. I mean, it's just like, oh man. I said Snow Patrol in the first service and I got like booze for that. So yeah. <laughs> Lamentations is written um, after the fall of Jerusalem in 587 BC. So 700 years before Christ comes on the scene, Jerusalem, God's people, had rejected his ways. This is their habit. He called them apart to be his people. He said, I will be your God. You will be my people. There's this promise that all nations of the earth will be blessed through Jerusalem. And God is constantly inviting them into covenant relationship and into obedience. And they kept messing that up. They kept doing what we're familiar with, intermittent rebellion and then return to God. And warnings were given. And then the destruction of Jerusalem is God's discipline. God's discipline of these people. Scripture is very clear. God disciplines those whom he loves. If you ever get thrust into a difficult situation, let that be your first reaction. Not the schema of secularism, which is like, oh, this, if this is unpleasurable, this can't be, this is not good. Rather to say, God, how are you shaping me as a father who loves me? Ooh, it's very different. But after the fall of Jerusalem, which was at the hands of Nebuchadnezzar, the second, a brutal siege, starved out the people. There's accounts within some of the other Old Testament writing that they were having to eat their children to survive. It's just horrid. And I want you to know that, not to be traumatized, <laughs> but rather to understand what was taking place and the significance and the place that God would go to to discipline those who he would love so that they could be ready to receive the hope of the world. In a similar way, he puts us through situations so that we can be grown and matured to carry the hope of the world and to not miss it. Okay, 
So we'll read a few verses here and make a couple of observations. This is the world before Christ came. Jerusalem, once so full of people, is now deserted. She who was once great among the nations now sits alone like a widow. Once the queen of all the earth, she's now a slave. She sobs through the night. Tears stream down her cheeks. Among all her lovers, there's no one left to comfort her. All her friends have betrayed her and become her enemies. The her here is Jerusalem, the city, city of God, this picture of God's faithfulness, which has been decimated now. In verse 3, Judah has been led away into captivity, oppressed with cruel slavery. She lives among foreign nations and has no place of rest. Her enemies have chased her down, and she has nowhere to turn. The roads to Jerusalem are in mourning, for crowds no longer come to celebrate the festivals. The city gates are silent. Her priests groan. Her young women, women are crying. How bitter is her fate. Her oppressors have become her masters, and her enemies prosper, for the Lord has punished Jerusalem for her many sins. Her children have been captured and taken away to distant lands. These people who had been spoken promises to, these people who anticipated that God would save them, have now been disciplined have now been, as the author says here, punished because of their rebellion. The Lord wanted to purify them so that they could be able to receive his hope years later. The writer addresses the problems from a national perspective. He sees that the whole country has in concert rejected the way of God, that the nation had been wrong. We who are in the West as Christ followers are significantly affected by the false gospel of secularity. And I think in a similar way, God is calling for us to repent. Repent of our small ways of thinking about God and his kingdom. Repent of our rebellion, our flippancy of who he is. Therefore, we do not need to lament a country or fixate on a country, but rather can look at ourselves to live a life of repentance, to repent of this gospel that says, God, you would not expect anything difficult of me. When throughout Scripture, there's an invitation. You are loved when you are disciplined. And through challenges, you will develop character and perseverance so that you can walk out the life that God has for you. During Advent, we have an opportunity to lament how broken we are without God, to lament the false story that we're often living into. During Advent, we learn to be honest. God is faithful, not because of our faithfulness, but because of his character. During Advent, we freshly long for a Savior to come. On Christmas Eve, we'll celebrate the beginning of the new age of Jesus coming. But now, we acknowledge suffering. We acknowledge brokenness, our need. We wait we wonder, we embrace the challenge, we allow it to cultivate within us the kind of strength that will be able to walk out the big mission that he has for every one of us. The classic Christmas carol, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, 
Emmanuel means God with us, echoes this longing. O come, O come, O bright and morning star, and bring us comfort from afar. Dispel the shadows of the night and turn our darkness into light. Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel shall come to thee, O Israel. Before we continue, I'd like for us to take two minutes of silence to reflect on your suffering, the challenges that you face, and allow them to be transformed into God's transformative process for you. Acknowledge your need for a Savior, a Savior that can take you through these seasons and use them to grow you as a true Jesus follower. I'll come back after two minutes. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we confess our weakness. We confess how we have bought into a version of you that is not what is true. But as we confess and lament, we also move towards hope that you are with us, you're for us. I pray that as we wrap this time that we would leave with hope. Hope because of what is really going on a much better story, and we give you praise for it. In Jesus' name, amen. Also through Advent, we look to the future, and the future is good. And God in his faithfulness has given us a vision of what that future looks for, looks like. John, we've been going through the book of John here, is given a vision that he writes down for us. And that vision is of God bringing all of heaven and earth together and redoing it all. The devil is punished and vanquished forever and ever in the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation helps us to live with anticipation that as Jesus said he is coming back, it's going to be very, very, very good. That is the context in which we suffer and allow the Lord to discipline us now. We will be in Revelation 21. We'll read a few verses and make some other observations about what this looks like. But ultimately, Revelation is a book about God winning. Come on, somebody. Amen. Me and Mike, we're on it. This is John's vision picking up towards the end of the book. We'll be in verses 1 through 7. John says... Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the old heaven and old earth had disappeared. The sea was also gone. Things had changed. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem. Did you catch that? God not giving up on Jerusalem. God not giving up on his people, any of his people, but redeeming and reclaiming and restoring it. Coming down from God out of heaven like a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband, and then I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, look, God's home is now among his people. He will live with them and they will be his people. That was his covenant and his promise all along from the very beginning and here at the very end. And then he says in verse four, he will wipe every tear from their eyes and there will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. All these things are gone forever. 
This is the vision that we are living into, and it radically shifts how we deal with the present. He goes on, verse 5. Are we still up there? Yeah, verse 5. And the one who was sitting on the throne said, Look, I am making everything new. Let's read that together. Look, I am making everything new. This is not all there is. He is making everything new. And again, I'll say, come on, somebody. Then he said to me, write this down for what I tell you is trustworthy and true. Going on to verse six, he said, and he also said, it is is finished. I am the Alpha, which is the beginning, and the Omega, which is the end. He is the whole context of the whole story. To all who are thirsty, I will give freely from the springs of the water of life. All who are victorious will inherit these blessings, and I will be their God, and they will be my children." The impulse towards pleasure and achievement and fulfillment right now is a part of how we are created, but ultimately it doesn't get fulfilled and finished in this life, but rather in the life to come when God brings all things together under his authority and makes it all new. In Advent, we believe again that God is the God who is making all things new. We long, we wait, but not as those without hope. The coming of Jesus changed all of history and reverses our mindsets and gives us a new way to think. And here's what it is. We are not, as Christians, just optimists. Optimists are like, oh, it's, it's good. You know, glass half full, yeah. It's good, it's good, it's good. No, Christians are like realists with a positive twist. Christians are realists. This, pardon the language, sucks, <laughs> But that's not the end of the sentence. It's a compound sentence. This is really challenging, comma, but God is doing something in me and God will renew all things at the very end. That's the story that I'm living. It dramatically changes everything. And it's a hard story for us to get our heads around. It was a hard story for the early church to get their heads around too because they were going through all sorts of suffering and persecution and Paul's saying, well, remember that you're baptized into his suffering and death. Oh, like we are suffering and we are dying right now. And Paul would just say, yes. <laughs> and it's doing something good in you. It's producing character. It's producing perseverance. You are, you are, you are, what is being produced within you is the character to carry this good news forward from generation to generation to generation. Because of that kind of character being formed in people, we have now received, and now we will pass on as we allow God to do his formative process through me. They didn't, weren't very good at it, and so Paul had to give them lots of instructions, and much of it is very positive and encouraging. Uh, Paul says to the Thessalonian church in chapter three, they're going through all sorts of trial and struggle, being oppressed, And he says, this is how you manage yourself in the midst of that struggle and trial. He says, may the Lord make your love for one another and all people. When when he said all people, they would have been thinking like all people, like you mean like the emperor that's, that's persecuting us, all people as in this oppressive Roman empire system, all people as in those Jews who don't think that we are part of the family of faith, all people. And Paul would say, yes, all people. Make your love for one another and for all people grow and overflow. I love that. It grows. We have more love as we go through persecution, hard times. We don't anticipate less love. We actually anticipate an overflow of love because it didn't start with our love. It didn't start with our idea. It's his love and his idea being poured into us so that it can overflow. Paul said to the Ephesians, he said, I pray that you might know the love of Christ, though it is too great to know fully. He didn't say that. I pray that life would go so well for you, you wouldn't be able to see anything but the goodness of God. He says that through all those things, I pray that you might have your spiritual eyes open to see that God's love is so big. It is so deep. It is so high and so long. I pray that you might be able to comprehend that. This is what his heart is for the Thessalonians too. As a result of that, this is what the instruction is. Make your heart strong, blameless, and holy. And this, he contextualizes all right here. Strong, blameless, and holy as you stand before, not your neighbor, 
not your pastor, as you stand before God our Father when the Lord Jesus returns. As you are suffering, as you are being challenged, as you are lamenting, you're not doing it without hope, but in the midst of it, I charge you, let your love overflow. Allow God to strengthen you through whatever that difficulty looks like. Choose to be blameless, living with a clear conscience. Paul then goes on later in 1 Thessalonians to give a picture of what it will be like when Jesus comes back again. He wants to remind them of the context. He says, and now, dear brothers and sisters, we want you to know what will happen to the believers who have died so you will not grieve like people who have no hope. The secular world vision is there's death and that's just it. There's no hope. But we have a different hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and was raised to life again, we also believe that when Jesus returns, God will bring back with him the believers who have died. Paul contextualizes their whole life and experience. And he says, it's what he says to the Corinthians. He says, where death is your victory? Where is your sting? It has been swallowed up in the victory of Jesus Christ. And so that changes everything. We do not just hope as optimists, thinking it's all gonna go good. No, we hope as those who are living into the eternal vision of God making everything new. Jesus says to Martha about this, her, her brother's in the grave. Lazarus is dead in John 11. About a year ago, we preached through this passage. It's just profound what Jesus is taking her to. Jesus said to Martha, Lazarus is dead. He's going to be resurrected by Jesus. Martha doesn't know this at this point. He gives her these statements. I am the resurrection and the life, Jesus says. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. That's the hope he gives. That's what he challenges her with. But then he, he twists it. And he asked Martha the same question that he asked us. Do you believe this? Do you live your life with this kind of context? Or have you bought into a secular worldview that suggests that anything that is not pleasurable or pleasant is anathema? And therefore reject it. Or do you believe that God is resurrecting all things and using all things to form you into the image of his dear son? Do you believe that? He asks each one of us. Hmm. Last week, my mom has been struggling She's had a hip that she couldn't really walk on and it got worse and she did therapy and she did, you know, ice and heat and all of the suggestions that are given. And so she had a CAT scan scheduled. They couldn't figure out what was going on. The morning of her CAT scan, she fell in the shower. It was very painful. They got her to the CAT scan. The doctor said, well, what a great day to have a CAT scan scheduled the day that you fell. You know, that's... Two days later, last Wednesday, the results of the CAT scan came back. One, my mom had broken her pelvis when she fell. Two, there's a tumorous mass that is eating away the bone in her hip. So obviously they reached out to the family and we gathered to pray over her and to stand with them in this time. Very difficult my mom sent me this text and I asked her if I could share it with you because here's an example, a real time example of grieving as though we have hope. She wrote me this. We see the hand of the Lord along this journey even though it sometimes feels dark or not what we want. 
I should also mention she fought off cancer 12 years ago, so they don't know yet. The oncologist is going to take a biopsy. They don't know. But certainly that's the first thing that came to everybody's mind. She said, I'm struggling the most with the realization that life has really changed. This stinks, she's saying. So it has to be one day at a time. My abilities and my inabilities have changed. That makes me saddest. But then she puts in all caps, but God, period. She writes, we are looking for his faithfulness every day and we see it. We continue to trust him. He has never failed us. Never will. And she gets personal. I love you so much, Isaac. (laughs) So thankful for all of you and your support as we make this journey. That's a picture. Brokenness. But there's hope. This isn't the end of the story. We're living according to a much better and bigger story. In Advent, we have the opportunity to believe that again to immerse ourselves in that story, to reject the secular vision of the world, and to rather take upon ourselves the Christian vision. This is broken. This hurts. But there's more. And God will transform me even as I walk through it. Hmm. I have some few points of application. This season, focus on Jesus. I am not talking about the cultural war of keeping Christ in Christmas. That's a cultural war. Let culture do whatever they want. (laughs) Take Christ out of Christmas, call it something else. I don't really care. But for the Christian, let's focus on what this is all about. Let's hold ourselves accountable, not American consumerism accountable. That's not our job. Are you with me? Yeah. Grieve the symptoms of our world's rejection of God. And you could put yourself in there too. Let's grieve. Let's be sad. The brokenness of the world is ultimately because of a rejection of God. Thirdly, but grieve with hope. This isn't the end of all things. God will be faithful even to the worst of the worst within our culture. All those systems that are very broken. God is going to be faithful. And we can live that way And finally, as Scott and Lacey suggested, invite people to the Christmas Eve service. We want them to know the real story of the world. We have no intention of just filling up a room because we feel good about ourselves by having a lot of people in the room, but we have every intention of making the message of Jesus Christ go as far and as wide as we can. And God has put people in your life that he's gonna invite you to invite to this service so their life can begin a transformative journey of becoming a follower of Jesus. Secularism is dead. It is dead. And we have the answer, Jesus Christ. Hmm. Well, we are going to conclude our time this morning with communion. Brett and the worship team are going to join me back up in here. And here is how we would like to do that this morning. There's a table to my right and left. There's also one in the back. As Brett is leading us in a song, we invite you to make your way and to come and get a piece of the bread representing the body of Jesus broken for us, the cup representing Jesus' blood spilled out for us. Take those with you back to your seat, and then I will come up in a few moments and we will receive this together. We think God has something special for us. So let's pray and then we'll move that direction. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you are good. You're faithful. Your love endures forever. It is my prayer this morning that each one of us would take advantage of this season to wrestle with what is deeply true. You, a good God, coming to rescue us 
The plan was messy because life is messy. I pray that each one of us would be willing to be invited into the sacrifice that it is to be a Jesus follower. The humility that it is. I pray that we would see more and more clearly how we've bought into the lies of the secular vision of me, myself, and I, pleasure, achievement, fulfillment in the present. And I pray that each of us would see more clearly that we are called upon in this moment of history to grab on to the true, robust, transformative gospel of Jesus Christ. You could be here today and you haven't made a decision to put your trust in Jesus. Today we'd like to give you that opportunity to begin your journey of following him. This will be just a moment, a first decision, and we would like to walk with you as you walk out that journey. If that's you this morning and you'd like to put your trust and faith in Jesus, maybe for the first time or for the first time in a long time, would you lift your hand? We want to give you an opportunity and agree with you as you are making that decision. Let's put your hand where I can see it. Yes, ma'am, I see your hand. God loves you, cares about you. He's doing a new thing today, drawing you to himself. Yes. Is there anybody else? Yes. I see the hand in the back there as well. Yes, yes. Well, we have a few people in here. They're saying that today's their day to follow Jesus. So let's pray with them out loud, all of us together. You repeat after me. Dear God, you sent Jesus to rescue this world. You sent him to the cross to die, to suffer, so that I can live. You rose him from the dead. You defeated death. Sin, my sin, hell, and the grave. Thank you. I receive the gift of life in Jesus Christ. I want to follow. Help me. Make the path clear. This is my prayer. Amen. We celebrate with some people who are saying yes to Jesus this morning. Yeah. Let's stand. Make your way to grab communion. Take it back to your seat with you. We'll partake all together in just.